Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Welcome to Inspiring Futures. Uh, we're in, uh, doing another episode. We're in sort of like um, maximum recording mode right now. We've got a lot of guests, um, which is great. And we're using, uh, I guess, using the downtime to an advantage. Um, delighted to have Matt Walsh of uh, Greenstone as my guest uh, this evening. Uh, again, a big thanks to Alexander Ray, who's making sure given my technical incompetence, that there is a sound recording at the end of all this. Uh, and he is from Orcs. Um, and he was also uh, with his uh, business partner, Christian, on one of my earlier podcasts. So Matt, let me say welcome. And uh, thank you for, for agreeing to be part of this. Um, hey, I appreciate the introduction. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, the benefit of, of listeners, we always do the sort of how did Matt get to where he got to today? So a lot of like an accelerated uh, resume journey of your, uh, of your career. And you can begin at whatever point in your life you want. It could be at seven, I realized that I wanted to create a virtual agency and it was my dream. Or it can be later on. Well, it's your choice, how you tell the story. I would say, like many people my age, I somewhat stumbled into UX. Uh, it wasn't really a field um, I, I was familiar with, but but I can say that my journey actually did to a UXer started early on. Um, uh, growing up, I I was somebody who grew up a, a chess and a speed chess player, and I, I I played a lot of chess in my early years, which is very much. If I do this, they're going to do that. I'm going to do this. They're going to do that. And how do I, you know, get the board to look the way I want it to look and empathize with my opponent to get him to make the moves I want him to make? That actually transitioned to seventh grade, where I, I actually wrote choose your own adventure stories. Uh, I, I remember one time I had probably 60 pages laid out on the floor of our, our living room, and if you picked up the sword, go to page 29, and if you wanted to fight the the dragon go to page 15 and um, so my brain kind of worked in that way even so much through high school where I never doodled I always drew mazes uh, so actually all through my high school notebooks there are mazes all through my notebooks and they always worked and I would get upset when somebody would solve one of my mazes from the end to the beginning so then I started drawing mazes both ways from both the end and the beginning to meet in the middle so it was just as tough to solve it going either way so all these little cues in hindsight were always there but uh, my professional journey after uh, ITP which is a grad school in New York at NYU uh, ITP has a very close relationship with RGA I took a little underground railroad over there in um, the early 2000s to work on an incredibly talented RGA Nike team. This was before Ray Inamoto had left AKQA, so he was my first creative director. And it was just a who's who of incredible talent working on the early days of, you know, content meets commerce meets utility in the digital, you know, flash-based realm in the early days of Nike ID and Nike Plus and beyond. And uh, three of us left there together to go down to Crispin Brook. Porter McGusky at the end of 2005 to blow out digital there. And I wound up spending eight years at, at Crispin um, uh, working on all manner of things there and, and seeing the, the dizzying highs of uh, 2005 through 2010. 
then learning about holding companies uh, and seeing a very different journey from 2011 to 2013, but uh, held strong throughout before deciding to hang a shingle with Greenstone uh, in January 2014. Wow, so you, uh, you guys are six years in, in the making. Yes, yeah, six years, uh, founded Greenstone out of my basement in Gun Barrel, Colorado with no funding, no partners, no clients, and no employees, uh, pretty much just me and a shingle. But, uh, but yeah, six years in now, and it's, it's been an exceptional journey. And if RGA taught me how to be good at a craft, and I learned at Crispin how to be good at building a department that does that craft, it's been fascinating at Greenstone learning how to build a business that is profitable at doing that craft. Uh, and, and those are three another, learning, another complete learning journey on that, right? Yeah, very different skills. Uh, and so I'm, I'm still trying to perfect the third one. <laughs> it's right. not easy in a time of uh, COVID. What, just, just going back to a little bit of your, your career trajectory, um, without, you know, just, just sort of being, um, you know, not being super candid, but the, the, the transition from RGA, which is producers builders to an agency that is ostensibly crisping as of ad agency, not necessarily technical. Um, what was that like that, that, that journey? Well, I would say, keep in mind that I was at RGA in 2003 to 2005. So it was a very different organization than it was, than it is today and far, far smaller. Uh, and I was on the Nike team. So they had a dedicated team. So I only worked on Nike and that team was really all I knew. That being said, they were extremely forward thinking and still are today and, and very uh, digitally evolved. The Crispin I joined at the end of 2005, beginning of 2006, was a Crispin that I, you know, had its finger on, a, on the pulse of this new viral marketing world. And they had already had Subservient Chicken and they had already had Minnie's Roof Studio. And, and I remember when my colleague Winston benched, um, funny part was I was actually, Nike had asked RGA permission to hire me and I was interviewing to be a team sports producer at Nike to move to Portland. And the day I got my job offer officially from Nike was the same day Winston got his job offer from Crispin to go down and head up digital production down at Crispin. And um, when he told me, he, he said, you know, hey, I got a job offer from Crispin. I had no idea who he was talking about, but he started listing off the projects that they had done. I was like, oh, I know that one. I know that project. Yeah. Oh, man, that place did all of those. Uh, but they had just resigned Mini and they had just gotten Volkswagen. And all of a sudden, a five-person digital team down there was tasked with a 450-page VW.com redesign, 650 dealer sites, as well as all digital marketing. They had about five people in New Digital at that point in time. And so, um, uh, you know, they hired the three of us, Scott Prindle, Winston Mitch, and myself to go down and join Jeff Benjamin, who was already down there and blowing out digital. And, and there were a lot of learnings. It was, for as progressive as it was as a, as a, as a agency, um, no doubt, they were bringing a lot of very traditional agency assumptions uh, along with them, and, and it took a lot of learnings uh, on all of our parts to kind of evolve them to a point where, at our height, we had 95 developers working on projects. We had a 25-person UX team. We were doing all manner of large-scale product platform, environmental, and application builds, and, and I would say, um, you know, 
there's a lot of work that we did to be proud of, not just on the viral side and on the award-winning side, but also on the product and digital platform and, 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 and very smart connected systems uh, that maybe didn't get as much press as the, as the stunty viral things, but you know, had far more lifetime value delivered to both customers and company. So, 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 um, you know, one of the things I, one of the mentor, my reverse mentoring program, one of the people I spoke to first, really interesting guy out of London, uh, UX meets behavioral scientist. Um, and he was sort of talking about the run-ins he was having with creatives who want 600 words of copy on the front page. And, you know, you can't, you know, there's a, there's a, in digital, you can't have it your way, you know? Well, I'll frame it this way. The biggest problem ad agencies, now keep in mind, even at Greenstone, our first couple of years, we subbed or partnered with 22, 24 ad agencies. Yeah. You know, Arts Lab, FCB, VB, Zeus, Jones, Barkley, Barbarian, Deutsch Hill, Holiday, McCann, and Victors and Spoils on down the line. Like, um, and, and so many of them have amazing talents, but I would say, across the whole spectrum from Crispin to the two dozen or so agencies I've worked with. The biggest challenge traditional agencies have with digital, if you get beyond digital ads, is they don't have the attention span for it. Digital is not a three week or even three month attention span. It is not a campaign cycle attention span. It is a three year attention span. Yeah. It is something where launch is the start line, not the end line. And, and I found, I've, it was one thing with, you know, let's go make a viral micro, you know, microsite. But if you were really trying to create digital products and platforms, the big difference between an RGA and a Crispin or, you know, a lot of other traditional firms is just the attention span to, that can last long enough to, you know, accommodate true digital product and platform work instead of restless creative directors who every two months want to be on to the next thing. Uh, that's not how digital works. And, and yeah, that's yeah. the biggest struggle. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard it. I've heard that designers are very good at iterating. And digital designers? Yeah, and, and, and traditional creatives don't like that. They want to they just get something done. And so the, you know, design iteration and design building, I mean, it, there's a sort of, I feel there's a different mentality around design in general and the discipline of design to making a TV ad, making a stunt video, making a print ad. Say each side has things to learn from each other. Oh, sure. You know, no doubt. I mean, there's a lot of product designers that need to think about hitting the heart as much as the head, and, yeah. and there's a lot of traditional creatives who, you know, need to move beyond the gimmicks. But uh, but it's something where you know the 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 best the world needs both. I I think it's just my hope is brands really recognize which kinds of mentalities solve which kinds of business problems. Uh, you know, I think for a while, everything was a nail in regards to clients spending a lot of money to create ad products to get a short-term transaction volume bump that is was constantly spike drop, spike drop, because they were using a hammer when they needed a, a chisel. Like, you know, and at the end of the day, I saw a lot of money being poured into ad 
products that just kept pouring water into a leaky bucket and yeah. and they never fixed the bucket <laughs> and so they would they can advertise all they want but the resulting customer journey was not proving out the promise that they were making through that advertising and until they fixed the customer journey and built the brand from the journey up all the advertising in the world wasn't going to buy them anything except the short-term transaction volume bump that goes away next quarter and exactly. and so you know my journey since the advertising world has really been focused on how do we craft journeys and experiences that earn longer term value and lifetime value uh, as opposed to just the spike drop spike drop of of, of branding work uh, which you know solve certain problems just not the kinds of problems that i've been trying to solve so um what is your what is your dream assignment you know, you know, someone's calling you tomorrow. What, what, what do you get excited about in terms of, and maybe, maybe you convert it from something, but what, when you think about it now, given your six years, um, you know, what, what would be a, you know, what would be a dream assignment for, for, for 2020 for you guys, just from a, from a capabilities, the, the challenge and the, the play to your skill set. Well, uh, so there's somewhat, two answers, which comes to, in essence, the two sides of, of Greenstone. I sometimes shorthand us, and I say this in actually out of deference and respect to these two org organizations, I sometimes shorthand us that we're IDO meets RGA with a dash of consultancy and a dash of branding agency, but we're a human-centric product and digital design firm. And we love projects that speak to both of those worlds in terms of a past project that uh, we love that I think is indicative of the kinds of things we'd love to continue to work on. We had the good fortune of being brought in to help design uh, and future vision a journey for a tracheotomy procedure. Mm -hmm. So from moment of procedure prescription through to post-op, what happens in the hospital, you have to take a test before you're allowed to go home to make sure that you can, you know, clean and, and maintain the tube and the breathing apparatus uh, through assimilation back into the home, assimilation back in with your friends, all the way up to decantillation if that's an option. But we were given the task of doing that for a pediatric audience, so for, or for an eight-year-old patient. Uh, mm -hmm. So how do you design a journey for both patient and caregiver? And how do you design a journey recognizing that the trach is only is not their real problem they need a trach because they have a bigger problem they have a paralyzed larynx or advanced crohn's disease or some kind of other medical situation that's inhibiting their ability to breathe mm. and so for us we took it on ourselves there was another consultancy that was creating the physical tube but we were brought in to design the behavioral and emotional and environmental journey uh you know to and through that pr procedure and we took it on ourselves to ask how can we make the trach as invisible as possible as quickly as possible intellectually you understand it emotionally you've accepted it behaviorally you know how to take care of it socially you have the language to tell your eight-year-old buddies why you have a tube sticking out of your neck environmentally we can create lego kits and sticker books to assimilate the suction machines into your room you know ordering supplies for mom and dad and, and on down the line how do you create an experience, a journey to and through with digital platforms to complement it along the way that can make that journey as, if not delightful as possible, as invisible as possible. Mm -hmm. So you can go focus on the bigger thing, whether it's hanging out with your friends or whether it's your bigger medical condition. 
And after a whole career of selling soda water and Nikes, um, you know, the first 20 minutes of that first brainstorm was so much more enriching and rewarding than so many dancing jello cubes I've made in my career. And, um, uh, and so, you know, I would say, you know, our hope partially is to get, is to apply kind of the powers that we have as experienced designers, as product designers and journey designers, um, you know, to more meaningful challenges like that, which is even more heightened in a world of coronavirus and the like. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I would say on the other side, we're also from a more utilitarian standpoint, you know, we are fascinated by the modernization of the relationship between company and customer. And we're fascinated. Our goal recently we've been focusing on is how do you build brands from the journey up, especially in verticals where the shopping malls are closed, the restaurants aren't open. You know, the, 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 a lot of the foundational assumptions of your entire business have been completely upended. And all of a sudden, how do you stay in business when your foundational assumptions don't hold true anymore? And who knows when they will hold true? And even if they open the malls, who knows how long before people come back? And asking that question of what business are you really in? At the end of the day, what is the, the, the role that you're filling in the world? And is there a more modern, more appropriate to the current environment way to fulfill that role and, you know, not just sustain in the short term, but also position yourself for a long term and ask those tough questions that you've been putting off because you're doing business same same old way. Mm -hmm. For me, yes, what we're excited about these days, it's those clients that are brave enough and also, you know, in a position to be able to ask those questions once they get the blocking and the tackling of day-to-day -day staying in business uh, uh, covered. And, and so that's a lot of what we've been focusing on lately. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that was going to be one of my questions, actually. I mean, I'm I've been building this uh, Google Doc, which is basically a resource guide. It's like 16 pages of links right now. That does really two things. One, how you can direct your help. Uh, and two, how you can stay sane while you're working from home with family. And so through that experience, I've been looking at a lot of digital experiences. And from people who need a hundred thousand masks and all they have is a Google form, yep. you know, to people, you know, there was a story in the times and I actually wrote to these guys cause I thought it'd be a really cool project. They're a South Carolina fishermen that have upscale, upscale fish going to, you know, restaurants and now that business is gone. So yep. what's, what's the pivot to that business to deliver the home? Uh, how do you, how would you set that up? So, yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, this, you know, the whole idea that we naively, there's a lot of naivety around digital transformation. And if you look at any of the consulting studies, they always say the same thing. They're like, yeah, it's about 25% leaders and then 75% are sort of struggling to try and make it work. And it's really apparent right now. Yeah. 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 It's, um, it's one where it's, it's tough because you don't want to blare too much about the potential for the future when people are just trying to survive the present. But that being said, now is a, a can be a wonderful catalyst for some of the tough questions that companies have been putting on a, off a long time. And, and our, our hope is to be able to help them whenever they're in a position to do so. Yeah. And when you think about, when you say, when you think about meaningful, you know, obviously that example is, is wonderful. 
Um, have you thought about sustainable behavior change or anything around that? Uh, have any projects to think about that? Because that seems, you know, how do you get people, how do you, how do you use all this understanding of users and of experience to uh, create something that actually leads to positive change? I would say I've thought a lot about sustainability in terms of business operational change, because certainly with Greenstone and beyond, I've always been fascinated, not just by the distributed model of working, but uh, uh, reimagining the foundational assumptions of what the working world, the working day, the workplace and the like look like. So, I, you know, I've, I've been very focused on there in terms of creating behavioral change in the customer world for, for the brands that we work with. I, I would say that um, I'd love to think that our design skills have the ability to to impact that in a significant way today. I mean, there are forces so much bigger than us or any of our brands at play right now that are dictating what those expectations will be in the future. And I think for us, it's it's less about trying to intentionally design it and it's more about making sure we're the ones water skiing behind the boat instead of being gobbled up in the propeller, <laughs> you know, because the, the boat's going either way. We're, we're surfing that wave and the wave is going, whether or not we design for anything, I, I think we're just trying to stay on top of the wave and, and ride it for as long as we can and bring as many as, as we can with us uh, while, you know, recognizing some of the realities of the situation. And, and that's where we don't want to be the complete tone deaf agency that, is so absorbed in our world that we don't empathize what the world looks like in, in the shoes of our clients these days and uh, let alone the customers they're designing for. So, so yeah, I'd say we're trying to analyze the environment more than design it. So um, picking up on one of the things you were talking about, which was uh, sustainable ways of working um, or new, new ways of working, which you've had, a, you have a six year head start on a bunch of folks who are now trying to work out how to behave in front of a camera and, and Zoom and how to run a 15 person meeting. Um, what, are, what are some things that you've learned along the way that, that you think are kind of valuable? I would say, let me give a little bit of context. So I started our firm in a distributed manner for two or three main reasons. One, at Crispin, I had spent eight years trying to convince people to move to Miami and Boulder. And there was a large section of the population that did not want to raise their kids in Miami. And there was a large section of the population that was 25 to 35 creative single and God help them if they weren't white who didn't want to be in Boulder more than eight months. And I was constantly losing the the best talent because they wouldn't live where I wanted them to live, which made me question, why do I need them to live there? And, and it really comes down to a foundational assumption in the creative consultancy world that creativity looks like a semicircle of people around a whiteboard with post-it notes in an exposed brick office with exposed ductwork in a trendy part of a big city with a bunch of hipsters and Warby Parker fresh off of a 14 hour day making magic in the room. And every agency has the same vision. And there's this, there's this diehard belief that you cannot replicate the magic in the room. 
And that singular sentence, that singular belief statement has led to entire generations of agencies and creative consultancies limiting their perspective and their talent pool to whoever will be within commuting distance of some office somewhere, whether it be SF, New York, Wichita, wherever it may be. And for me, you know, the first problem with that is the limit of the, of the talent pool. But the second far bigger problem with that is the limitation of inspiration. The fact that, you know, you have whole industries built around the same neighborhoods in the same big cities who think that we're, you know, with the same talent that all thinks the world cares about the latest MoMA launch and who totally missed Trump and Brexit happening because they have no idea what's going on outside of Dumbo in the Mission District. And I really want to design a model that broke the echo chamber, not just of the office, but of the region uh, and, and of the big city and allowed us to bridge urban, rural and manufacturing center to design center as well as city to city. It's not that we're abandoning the cities, yeah. but the hope is to create a culture that recognizes Ada, Oklahoma has as much to teach New York as New York has to teach Ada. How do you get a relentlessly curious and multi-dimensional workforce to cross-pollinate ideas, energy, and inspiration across a lot of different kinds of cultural boundaries, leveraging the digital tools that allow for efficiency and the same creative process to happen in a far more, you know, imaginative and efficient and, and, and inspired way. Uh, and so we're still continuing to prove out our ability, uh, you know, to create the, the, the same level of quality as, the RGAs of the world or the Crispins of the world and the like. And, you know, I'm very proud of the work that we've been able to do, but, uh, but yeah, the, the inspiration kind of came from that. Now in regards to um, the question itself as to tips of, of working this way, I would say, first off, it's not for everyone. You know, some people need the office. They need the, you know, microbrew on tap and burritos in the freezer and the happy hours and the whiteboard and the hallway conversations and the water coolers. And, and that's fine. And, and frankly, some people really want their social lives to revolve around the company they work for. And Crispin was entirely that. I mean, everybody's social life revolved around the company. And, and there's a magic to that. And, and there was a magic to the RGA Nike team that had the same situation. So I would say, first off, it's not for everyone and you have to be comfortable with your social life not revolving around your company. But that being said, I think for every one of those 26 year olds who, who needs that, there's a whole generation of you know 30 year olds and up who have checked that box and, and appreciate that, but you know, they want to find inspiration somewhere beyond the same old neighborhoods and the same old cities working in the same old offices with the 50 minute commute each way. And right now there are extremely limited options for them short of going into your own freelance. And so my hope is coming out of this situation is that there's a lot more tolerance for, you know, remote workers, but it, it takes effort. And, and, and honestly, there's, an hour of just working remotely tips I can give in the first place. But I would say, you know, it all has to start with a sense of purpose and a mission that, that binds together everybody. If, if you're not going to have the happy hours and the, and the social life uh, from a traditional office. And, but yeah, if you that, that was what I was going to ask was, um, you know, there's, there's the tool sets and the things that you, 
you naturally gravitate towards to get to to replace the things that you would do in person so the zooms the slacks i get it i'm sure there's there's others as well um but then how do you how do you get your guy from oklahoma to bring his or her perspective into that you know you can get very rigid and very uh very regimented through these tools um how do you get the playfulness how do you get those random conversations um how do you do that how do you do that remotely is it about having happy hours is it about uh having a whole uh channel dedicated to I don't know. I don't know what you guys do, but uh, it seems like I like the I like the concept of what you're trying to do. And I believe, obviously, having someone in Oklahoma being part of your team is naturally going to feed something that's a little different into 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 a system. But how do you imbue that and take that and and make sure everyone benefits from it? So a few things I would say. First off, you have to hire the right people. Uh, and, and there is a temperament that I've found works better than others in regards to distributed working. Uh, and oftentimes it includes somebody who is a little bit more proactive and self-directed. Uh, wallflowers do not usually do too well in distributed work environments. People who are constantly waiting to be invited into everything and waiting to be told what to do do not work well inside these environments. People who just grab the reins and know 20% of what they need to know and just go figure out the rest work very well inside of this environment. I would say from there's the work side and there's a cultural side. I would say from the work side, when I think of RGA or Crispin or, or all the other places I've worked, most of the brainstorming is two guys going to a couch with a notepad and just riffing with a brief and, and it's kind of on them to go pull up cool sites and think about this and what about that? And I mean, I have yet to see a scenario where a Zoom can't fulfill that need just as much as two guys sitting on a couch can fulfill that need if you have the right folks who communicate well and, and who are pro at what they do. Um, uh, and then I would say there are a lot of accompanying tools when you can have a screen share up, when you can have a Miro up, when you can have different examples floating back and forth and copy pasting images and videos and whatever else in a dynamic environment that typical whiteboards do not accommodate. Uh, it allows for a much richer collaboration and, and brainstorming session. Um, I would say from a cultural side, a lot of it is finding ways to to connect people outside of projects. Uh, and there's a lot of, frankly, a lot of it is very analog, very simple ways. We have a Slack channel called GS Pictures. That's just pictures that people post from wherever they are. They could be out for a walk with their kid. They could be at a museum. They could be on a cruise. They could be, a, you know, our, our approach is to make the world your office and get out there and experience things that you can bring back into the work. And, and the simple addition of a pictures channel where we celebrate the region as much as the person. So when Sue joins, it's not just that Sue joins, Detroit joined. When Jeremy joined, the Hudson Valley joined. Yeah. You know, and we've had situations where we do introductions and we don't even show a face of the person. We show their location. And we have Jeremy talk about the Hudson Valley and Clinton, New York, just as much. Uh, I, I don't want a laundry list of what shops he's worked at before. I want to know why he lives in the Hudson Valley and what he loves about it, what other people can take yeah. away from it. Very cool. Yeah. 
So we, you know, we do those kinds of things. We have GS parent channels. We have different cultural channels where we talk, uh, you know, we have people who love hockey or music or parents or, you know, parenting or whatever else. And, and, the, and then we have team retreats. We do get together. It's not like we never see each other. We see each other every day on video chat. We see each other when we fly to client meetings. Uh, we see each other every nine months for team retreats. But the beauty of our model is you don't take it for granted. And so when you see each other, it's actually a really exciting thing. Uh, and it's something where people really, really look forward to it because they don't take it for granted. And, um, uh, and then, you know, we've tried to reimagine holiday parties. I mean, I, I love the challenge of a remote workforce because it, it brings up all kinds of interesting experience design challenges. Like, how do you have a holiday party when nobody is in the same place or even the same time zone? You know, and, and there's yeah. a dozen of those different things that are just fascinating design challenges culturally. But if you do them all right and you really have a sense of purpose and, and mission and, and you take advantage of the times you are together, you get an efficiency and a camaraderie and a multidimensional perspective that in my mind is so much richer than a traditional office. So um, coming back to the client thing, how do you decide that you've got to fly? And, and when, where's, where's the limit between what you can do remotely with a client and then what you need to fly for? It really depends on the client. We don't believe in one size fits all anything. We, we very much tailor solutions yeah. to the specific situation. I would say there, if it's a new client that we don't have a deep relationship in history with, we fly more often or we drive and, and, and try and see them. Uh, if it's a client we have a solid history with, most of them are pretty used to working with us the way that we work with. Uh, oftentimes we'll have a discovery workshop at the beginning of a project where there's, yeah, you know, you get the key stakeholders in, we can have all of the interviews yeah. in the office and the whiteboard comes in yeah. very handy there. Yeah. Um, uh, and then there are other clients that are more traditional that, you know, need to be in that space. And frankly, some of our clients are just as distributed as we are. And, and so it, it's not a big deal either way, but I wouldn't say there's a litmus test as to how and where I would say more of our challenge comes from, our challenge is less, can our people work remotely together? And our challenge is more, uh, the nature of our model is such that we're often bringing in subject matter experts. We're designed to be half full-time and half freelance. And so there are a lot of scenarios where we'll bring a subject matter expert freelance who hasn't worked with the team before. And so we're trying the A-team concept where we get a collective of the right folks and put them together, but sometimes they haven't worked together before. And so for us, a lot of the efficiency of actually being in person is about a team that hasn't worked together before learning to work together efficiently, as opposed to worrying about whether or not the client can work with us well remotely. And that's become less of an issue over time, but it's something we've tried to tackle. Yeah. So, um, knowing what agencies are going through, what, what do you, what do you think? I mean, this is, You've seen it, you've lived through it, you've been there, you've seen the holding companies, you've seen transformation. You know, this is, um, you know, the, the, the slow train journey of change has now got an abrupt catalyst. Um, where, where do you feel this is gonna net out? What do, you, what, do you see, what do you see happening six months down the road, a year down the road? I, in terms of the agency world or how brands interact with customers? 
I think in terms of the agency world, in terms of, you know, how people work together, you know, we're in the ideas business, we're building experiences, we're, we're creating things for, for companies and people have done it a certain way for so long. And, you know, everyone recognizes that the largest companies are extremely challenged because they have not masses of offices all around the world with huge overheads and big staffs. And now they're trying to cut those stuff. So you just have, you know, a bunch of junior people working 18 hours a day and a few senior people working 18 hours a day and nothing in between. And uh, you're trying to run a business um, on, on that kind of basis. And it doesn't seem uh, sustainable. I don't believe agencies are going to go away. I do believe small agencies will will continue to get more opportunities and will be heard out more which has you know been the general trajectory there will be some consolidation coming up in regards to a lot of agencies will go out of business if they're not aggressive enough or if this doesn't rebound quickly enough i i do believe that i do believe in housing will continue but keep in mind, the entire premise of Greenstone and my belief system is that echo chambers are extremely dangerous. And an in-house agency is an even greater echo chamber than a traditional agency office environment. Because at least at an agency, you get to experience different verticals and clients and whatnot. Like when you're talking an in-house agency, that is the ultimate echo chamber. And not to say they're incapable of creating good work. But I do think external you know, ideas and perspectives will continue to be sought after. Well, isn't, it, isn't, it, isn't it the, 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 the friction or the tension or the, the fact that you have outsiders working with insiders that make things interesting? If, you've all, if you're all creating inside a house and it's the, the, you know, everyone's sort of agreeing and drinking the Kool-Aid, then uh, it's not necessarily the most fertile environment for creating compelling, risky ideas. Agree, and I do believe, I do believe some companies also should absolutely continue to work with agencies because it's just not what they do. I mean, there are some companies out there that should just focus on what they do and do it really well, and not try to be a media agency or a content creator or what like it's not what they do they should just focus on what they do and i think there will continue to be plenty out there but but no doubt nikes of the world and the like will i mean yes they should absolutely do more in-house because there's a lot more efficiencies gained with that and i think they'll continue the trajectory of going to small boutique firms to get the big idea and then executing that idea with in-house resources that are 40 percent the cost um and um uh, I think that will continue. As to the big holding companies, um, yeah, honestly, it's a little above my pay grade. I, I I don't know where the where the where the big guys are going, but I don't think TV advertising's going away. I do think coming out of the recession, people will or well, coming out of the pandemic, people will want a sense of hope and and entertainment and and meaning again. So I do think communications will be very important uh, when everything has been for months about just scraping by and washing the hands and seeing people get sick. You know, there will be some desire, not just for escapism, but also just for a laugh on the TV. Uh, so I do think that uh, in the in the midterm, 
you know, marketing will have a big role to play in, in regaining people's trust and confidence, both in the economy and brands, and, and that it's safe to go outside again. But, um, but I, honestly, I don't know long-term. I don't think anybody can uh, say with certainty. Yeah. Um, advice, you, you know, you were, you were talking about the small shops. What, you know, they're going through a how, you know, a lot of them are going through a tough time right now. What, what, and you said, you talked about aggressiveness um, as being a trait of survival. What, what, how, how do you think um, those guys should apply themselves to survive? What would you what would you suggest that the approaches are needed? I would say empathy. Understand what your clients are going through, your prospects are going through. Yeah, yeah, just just showing. I mean, two things. One, making sure you don't run out of money, and assuming you're not going to run out of money and go out of business, you know, and have a runway. Be as empathetic as possible to. to, to make sure that we're always in the service of delivering meaningful value to others, delivering yeah. meaningful value. And, and that's where, for me, I, I got so frustrated with an industry that for a decade seemed so focused on patting itself on the back for whatever mm-hmm. catchy viral new idea yeah. came up. Yeah, yeah, just a bunch of ad guys being like, oh, no, no, you're great. No, no, you're great. You know, meanwhile, nobody even used whatever the thing was. Um, uh, and it really provided long-term value to almost nobody. And I, well, I, think, I think what you're saying that's really interesting is, is sort of like the idea of like, like the, the, the self, be a little um, selfless, focus in on what the business problems are your clients are facing. Yeah, and empathize with both the client and the customer to, yeah. to really ground even communications in something that's going to deliver real value as opposed to just be a great idea board. And I think my biggest hope for the shift in the industry is that this will finally put like, you know, the last nail in the coffin of ideas for ideas sake, as opposed to really grounding things in an empathy and an understanding of the needs of who we're designing for and even emotional needs. uh, uh, But just getting out of, ad guys making ad products to be celebrated by other ad guys that are a great idea board, but don't really provide real value. Like like everybody needs to be focused on how do we provide value for the client and the customer and however cool the ad idea is, is a distant seventh in importance to, you know, delivering meaningful value to, you know, real people. Last question then. Um, Who do you need to do that what you know it, it seems like you need talent you need a certain breed of talent to help you get there it's, it's I, would, I would say you need leadership that sets the lens properly yeah i i would say you need you know the best talent in the world is still going to follow the CCO who says, this is a good idea, that's a bad idea. And, and I think we need brave CCOs who set the lens for the rest of the organization as to what they're going to consider a good or bad idea in today's world. And it has to start from the top. Uh, uh, and then have creatives who can you know, get inspired by that Pied Piper tune 
and focus all of their efforts on really empathizing and understanding the human being that that idea board is being created for just as much as whatever they think is or isn't a good idea on that board. Yeah, that's great. Brilliant. I don't know if that helps, but I, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's, no, that's my stream great. of consciousness. No, I, uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, your, your thoughtfulness. That was a really, really good session. So um, thank you again. No worries at all. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.